2: Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the updates on the great writers we have coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to see photos of the studio and the cocktails getting made, check out my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please leave a comment. I want to hear about the writers you want to hear on this show. I've been getting a lot of great booking ideas from you guys.
0: Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors, and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations.
2: Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're with Professor Gad Sad. He teaches a marketing course at Concordia University that applies theories of evolutionary psychology He's also the host of the show, The Sad Truth, an extremely popular and thought-provoking show on YouTube, and he's the best-selling author of five books. The latest is The Sad Truth About Happiness. He has become a treasured public intellectual and therapist to the world, and we're lucky he's with us today. Gad, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Doug. So good to be with you. Now, your drink selection today is Bailey's over a few ice cubes, which I'm excited see. It feels kind of like dessert-ish, very relaxing, warming drink, right? <laughs> So I'm going to get a little ice going and pour Uh, out.
3: The only reason I'm not joining you, number one, I'm a bit sick, so forgive the coughs if if I cough in your ears, listeners. Number two, I keep a very assiduous count of my calories, and I don't want to waste 100 or 120 calories on on alcohol, notwithstanding that I would love to be joining you. So forgive me if I only (laughs) join you in spirit.
2: Do you ever drink?
3: I do, uh, but very rarely. In other words, I I just don't have the the innate penchant for uh, alcohol, as I I think I mentioned in our email exchanges. I love Bailey's uh, Irish cream. I typically have it when I'm flying, I don't know why. For whatever reason, it just feels cool to to order it on a plane. Uh, I also drink <laughs> a bit of white wine and some champagne, and that's about it. I've never no, I've never drank, you know, vodka, whiskey, all that stuff. To me, it's like drinking petrol.
2: Yeah. Well, it does kill brain cells, so that's that. It's clear why you're uh, you're succeeding in life. You, you're keeping all the brain cells <laughs> intact. I, on the other hand, I'm gonna have a little bit of this. So, so I wanted to start. Early days. I know you were born in Beirut, Lebanon. Your family was Jewish. And in 1975, almost 50 years ago now, your family fled to Canada to escape the, the Lebanese Civil War.
3: Indeed. Uh, we were part of the last remaining Jews in Lebanon. At one point, there was a, a small but vibrant community. And then throughout the 20th century, as it became more precarious to be Jewish anywhere in the Middle East, most of my extended family had left most of them left to Israel a few left to France Uh, we had a an aunt my mother's sister left to Canada and so one of the reasons why we ended up coming to Canada is because she was here with her husband Mm -hmm. Uh, they had come here before the Civil War and also because in Lebanon at the time you know, everybody, of course, spoke Arabic as the mother tongue, but we also spoke French because uh, Lebanon used to be a French protectorate. And so because Montreal is also French speaking, it made sense for us to come to Montreal. Although 50 years later, I still regret the winters that I have to go through here.
2: <laughs> I know. Come on, come on south of the border. It's, it's nice down here. People have often asked, I mean,
3: said that uh, the problem with being a professor is that you probably heard the term tenure is both a a blessing and a curse in that it's the golden handcuffs right so yeah once you're a tenured professor it's very very hard to move because another school whilst they might be very desirous to have you there oftentimes they're not willing to get married to you you know for eternity yeah. and so to move once you have tenure is pretty difficult so that's the one of the only reasons why I remain in the frozen tundra
2: yeah, yeah, I know. I, I want to get into that in a bit because I know you've been at Concordia for about 30 years and you've had some visiting professorships elsewhere. But yep. it can be hard to get tenure, especially when you're out on the, the front lines of some culture topics and things, which I know can make you uh, a hot rock. But so you you continue your education in Canada. Cause you went to McGill for your bachelor's and also got an MBA, uh, which is a, a Canadian university.
3: That's right. So McGill is, uh, it used to, I mean, it, it still is called the Harvard of the North, although given some of the recent Harvard realities, maybe we need to uh, scratch that association. Yeah. So it's one of the truly elite global universities, certainly the most prestigious university in Canada. I did an undergrad in mathematics and computer science, so about as technical and you know quantitatively rigorous by definition as you can get. Then after my undergrad, I did an MBA, but even during my MBA, I I wrote a mini thesis in operations research, which is an applied mathematics field. It's basically a field where you learn how to use mathematical algorithms to solve optimization problems. How do you minimize something or maximize something, which are problems that happen often in nature and certainly in business. Then I went to Cornell, did an MS, Masters of Science, and then a PhD uh, at Cornell my area, my doctoral dissertation was something uh, called stopping rules, which is when is it that you have acquired enough information to stop and commit to a choice? So let's say you're choosing between two prospective women to marry or two employees to hire or two political candidates to choose from. You could sample a hundred attributes on these two candidates, but you typically don't. After a certain number of attributes, you say, I've seen enough. I'm ready to marry Mm -hmm. this girl. I'm ready to choose this uh, employee I'm ready I'm ready to buy this car and so I was looking at the cognitive strategies that uh, define that stopping decision
2: like hormonal contributions to it i remember as well in my reading of your work right there's a hormonal contribution to consumer behavior the hormonal stuff came after I got my
3: phd so my doctoral dissertation was uh didn't uh, employ any you know hormonal factors but later in my career when I uh, de, you know, founded and developed the field of evolutionary consumption, which you refer to in the introduction. The application of evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology to consumer behavior. There, I studied uh, a wide range of hormonal influences on decision making. So, I'll just div- mm-hmm. give you two quick studies. In once, in one study with one of my former uh, graduate students, we looked at how uh, testosterone reacts as a function of conspicuous consumption in men. So if I put you in a fancy sports car or a beaten up old sedan, and I measure, I actually measure your testosterone levels through salivary assays, how does your endocrinological system react? And not surprisingly, when you put young men, probably not only young men, but in this case, it was largely young men in our study, when you put them in the fancy Porsche and you ask them to drive around Montreal, their testosterone levels shoot through the roof. And then we also looked at uh, hormonal effects of women's behaviors with another one of my uh, graduate students, who's now, both of these, by the way, are now professors uh, on their own. Uh, We looked at how the ovulatory cycle, how the menstrual cycle affects women's behaviors. Specifically, in one paper, we looked at beautification practices, so uh, are Do women dress differently? Do they engage in different types of sexual signaling as a function of where they are in their menstrual cycle? And the answer is a resounding yes. When they are in the fertile phase of their cycles, that's when they engage in the most vigorous sexual signaling, as is true of many other females Mm and other species. And we also looked at food-related Is this totally
2: unconscious to them? are Are they consciously saying, I'm feeling good? And like, they're sort of aware they're doing it or they're not aware? Yeah,
3: that's a great question. I mean, they could be aware in that I... I feel as though I'm sexy today. I feel that there is a you about me. That doesn't mean that they can offer the evolutionary explanation for why they are feeling that way, so, right? So mm-hmm. it, it very much like how when you breathe, your, your capacity to breathe is an adaptation, is an evolutionary mechanism. That doesn't mean that it is within the conscious purview of most people to say, oh, let me tell you the evolutionary reasons of how I've evolved my respiratory capabilities. So it's conscious Mm -hmm. only in the sense that, you know, you may feel sexy when you are in the maximally fertile phase of your menstrual cycle, but you don't necessarily have the evolutionary explanation for it.
2: Right. Yeah. If you wake up and you're like, I'm feeling really fat today and you're not going to, you're not going to wear the, uh, the Lululemon stuff. Exactly. Uh, so your book here, the fast, I, I have tons of underlines in here for everyone who reads. should always read with a pen, but yours in, in particular, because it's, it's full of amazing little tidbits and facts and you share a lot of personal, uh, it's a great way to get to know you personally in the book as well. Cause you share a lot of personal anecdotes, but I, one of the things I underlined in there is you, you say that Freud and young are both quacks and I wanted to follow up on like all of it or what, what specifically is quacky about those two? That it's so amazing that you would pick that as the
3: first question from the book, because, you know, you sent me a you told me about some questions that you might ask me at the end, uh, the lightning mm-hmm. rod. So one of my answers to one of your questions deals with Freud and Jung. So do you want me to answer it now or <laughs> save it for later?
2: It's up to you. All right. Let, let's park that one then. Let's save that for later, because then you can like finish with a bang. Uh, okay. One of the other things I noted in there was that you said that psychiatry is too dark a profession for you. You're sort of inherently a happy, good guy. And that stuck with me in particular, because my father was a psychiatrist. If he, were, if he were alive today, he'd be 97. And wow. I watched the evolution of his own practice. And one of the things that struck me was the darkness of it. it because when he was a young man, he, he was a very talented psychiatrist. So he was really in demand. And everybody in our area outside of Philadelphia, you know, he was he was the one people really wanted to be with. But as he got older these patients would stay with him, you know, that's, he was their guy. And, and they were, they weren't there for like two weeks of crisis. They were there, you know, weekly or biweekly their whole lives. And so as he aged, his clients aged and therefore his practice became like a geriatric psychiatry. And I think toward the end of his life, because he continued working into his eighties, um, It got so depressing. Every one of his patients, you know, no longer were they in their house. They had all made the transition to a resting home or things like that. And they were dealing with the problems that old people deal with that he, of course, was dealing with himself. And I think the whole thing got into this spiral of darkness. And I uh, anyway, so what when you wrote about psychiatry being too dark a profession, that really hit me.
3: Right. Uh, Well, thank you for sharing your story about your dad. Uh, Well, there were two reasons that I talk about in the intro to the book as to why I decided not to follow a a therapeutic path. uh, path. Uh, Number one, you alluded to it, which is I felt that on the one hand, I have the personality to be empathetic and to try to you know, resolve problems, hence one of the reasons why I weigh in on all of this lunacy and culture wars, because I just can't walk away from craziness. I feel like however small or big my voice is, I I would feel like a fraud if I didn't weigh in. And so in that sense, psychiatry or clinical psychology appealed to me because, hey, I would be spending all my days helping people. On the other hand, I, you know, maybe because I, I am aware of my strengths and weaknesses, I felt that I was someone who was very, very sensitive and very sentimental. And I would probably be someone who would engage in endless ruminative thinking, right? I mean, hearing about how the five-year-old girl, you know, was, uh, you know, sexually abused by her uncle, uh, and you know, while probably her mother knew about it is, yeah, on the one hand, it would be great for me to try to help her. On the other hand, it probably wouldn't take me long before I would start drinking and put a bullet in my head because I can't deal with that kind of ugliness. And so I thought about it really hard. I mean, I I, I actually thought after my undergrad of going to medical school so I could go into psychiatry. And I thought, you know what, I, I'm really interested in human behavior. I really want to contribute in the behavioral sciences, but let's maybe study something that's a bit more uplifting. So in retrospect, I don't regret it. And in a sense, when If you When you read the book, now I'm known as the de facto global therapist. I've kind of itched that scratch by being able to now offer advice and prescriptions to people without necessarily wallowing in how they were abused when they were five years old.
2: No, it's great. You're like a broadcast therapist in a a sense. And uh, you're too important a voice out there as a public intellectual to be confined to one room, one patient in a (laughs) one-on-one relationship. And I love that you're out there on the front lines of this culture war taking on these issues like the madness and you you do it in a great way The the whole scene I know my wife loves this when you hide under the desk and and you sort of take on sort of the the woke stuff and I I wanted to ask you about that because that is really the course you've taken in addition to being a you know a professor you're you're you are this public intellectual and I have noticed with a lot of people who take on this challenge like this madness out there it can get highly vitriolic and I, I see your stuff on Twitter and things like that and you'll say something and you get viciously attacked and when people do get on the front lines of this, it can be hard and it can change people a little bit too. Like you, when you you can become more pugilistic and and sometimes pugilistic for their own sake. I feel like you are this happy warrior and I my wife has referred to you and using exactly that phrase. But can you maintain it? Because there is this thing like as you're fighting the monster over time sometimes you become the monster. Do you ever feel yourself kind of slipping into being pugilistic for pugilistic sake or or slipping into like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm evolving to something I don't want to be.
3: I, I don't think dispositionally I can ever change to that, right? I mean, I am dispositionally someone who is happy, right? I mean, I mentioned in the intro to the book that about 50% of our individual differences in happiness scores come from our genes. So mm-hmm. I think the, the starting point of where my dial is set is to be happy. You are right that sometimes it can be You know, it can weigh on you when you're being attacked in a million ways. I could sometimes get a bit spicy, but it's very temporary. In other words, uh, if you are attacking me for eight straight days, I may, you know, the the most I'll do is I might call you a lobotomized castrato, right? So that's the extent to to which I might, you know, retort in a way. But even that has a funny element, right? Uh, In other words, I I don't use F words. I don't, uh, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't get personally mean. I don't try to get you canceled yeah. with your employer. Yes. Once in a while, I mean, I'm human. I I react, but overall, uh, Humor allows me not only to use one of many different persuasion strategies to try to convince people about a particular position, because humor and satire are like the surgeon's scalpel. It just cuts so nicely through warm butter. That's why satirists are typically despised by dictators. They don't go after the guys with the big muscles. They go after the guys with the... the stinging pen and the sharp tongues precisely because they are the threat to dictatorial regime. And so, but uh-huh. also humor allows me to use it as a kind of pressure cooker relief valve, right? By joking about it, by laughing about it, it allows me to deal with the insanity. So no, I don't think it has changed me in any permanent way, but it can be trying at times.
2: Well, there, there are a lot of people in the front lines of the culture war. I mean, I think O'Reilly even wrote a book, Bill O'Reilly wrote a book, culture wars and things like that. And When I think of him, <laughs> He like, he does not now his genetic disposition could be far different from yours. He's probably not as naturally a happy person, but he gets on these things and man, that guy is angry. Sometimes I'm like, you got to step off the front lines of the culture war, my man, you're getting very upset. And, uh, you know, I, it's great that he's out there doing his thing, but there's like a, there's a, there's a literary, uh, sort of analogy that Beowulf, you know, is, is like the monster killer, but he's, he's successful in fighting the monsters. because He's part monster himself. (laughs)
3: <laughs> right. Uh, I think part of my secret, if I look beyond my disposition, is that, and I, I, based on what I know of your family, I think you probably, it will resonate with you. I think the fact that I can find solace in the security of my family, uh, mm-hmm. the fact that I have a very supportive wife, the fact that I've got Uh, a very, very strong relationship with my children. Now you might say, well, doesn't everybody? Well, no, you know, we're a very, very tight-knit family. You know, uh, I remember I gave a talk. It was uh, organized by Hillsdale College. It was in Naples, Florida. This was uh, in, uh, I think, February or March, 2022. And it was in front of a you know a huge crowd and at the end of the talk uh as i walked down from the podium my daughter came up to me she so now she's 14 she would have been maybe 12. gave me a really really big hug and said uh daddy i'm so proud of you i love you well that moment to me meant a lot more mm-hmm. than if some fancy colleague from stanford or harvard says i'm a fan right to have your about to enter teenagehood daughter say that you're cool, that she admires you, that she loves you, <laughs> makes you feel good. Makes you, That's the accolades that I'm looking for. And so I think having a happy home also
2: protects me from the ugliness of the world. That is a good spike the ball moment. Or in your case, the soccer with the knee slide after you, you score a goal. <laughs> As I know, maybe we should we should talk about your soccer prowess at some point too, because I know that was nearly a career uh, of yours. Well, that is, that is great. The family, family, nothing keeps your feet on the ground and centers you in the way that family, the nuclear family, can. Let, let's talk a, a minute about your process because you have so much going on. You're a you're a teaching professor. You've got this hit show. You're writing and publishing. So how do you structure your time over the course of a day or a week? Oh, I love that
3: question. In a sense, I address that in the chapter in the happiness book where I talk about what are some things you should look for in your ideal job in order to obtain as much occupational happiness as possible. And, and and the two things that I say, which kind of speak to your question. I say any job that allows you to instantiate your creative impulse, by definition, is going to be a pathway to purpose and meaning. So I could be a chef or a stand-up comic or a podcaster or an author or a professor or an architect. All of these jobs are very different, but they share one thing in common. They create something from nothing, right, Uh, until I came along and created uh, you know, started striking uh, the keyboard on my laptop, there was no book, right? And and at the end, magically, uh, you know, one year later, 12, 14 months later, there's a book ready. And so, but part of that creative impulse, so to your question, I need to feel as though I'm, a, in French, you say flaneur or a vagabond. In other words, I don't like having you know, a spoken for schedule, I call that scheduling asphyxia. So I need to float around. So, you know, right now, I feel like going and writing a short, sweet 1000 word article to submit to one of the popular presses, because I feel like being creative, but I don't feel like committing to, you know, doing the third round review of some, you know, really dense academic paper where I have to do all kinds of fancy mathematical analyses. Okay, well, then I just go off to the cafe, and I whip up that thousand word article you know in two hours oh you know what i feel like railing against something that i saw yesterday on whatever on some show i'll open up and i'll do the sad truth so i'm not a very structured person in that you know i release a sad truth every tuesday or i work on my book from four to six i'm very very uh instinctual i just go wherever the spirit moves Mm -hmm. me and so there is no process to how I schedule things other than I'm perpetually working, but I never feel stressed about it because mm-hmm. I feel as though I have complete temporal freedom. And so it's like a big playground.
2: That's amazing to I mean, to be productive without that level of structure requires a special discipline and a special love of what you're doing to, to, exactly. you know, stay at it and have that work ethic. How about, you know, in the different forms of things you're doing, whether it's your show, whether it's your books or whether it's putting together a, a lesson plan for a semester, I notice more and more about the different kinds of people I talk to on this show and encounter. It's all storytelling. Whether you're a news journalist in print or broadcast, everything has an arc. Everything has a story to it. Is that, do you think about that sort of thing? Like the journey you're going to take your students through uh, in the 100%. course of a semester?
3: 100%. But just, just to, I just thought of something uh, regarding your last question and I'll mention this. The only kind of assiduous discipline that I have when I'm writing books is that I uh commit to writing a certain number of words a day if only because if you get as you know a a large book Mm -hmm. advance the publisher has a metaphorical gun to your head that says you better submit this book on september 22nd based on the contract and so in that sense i may not set aside from four to seven to work but i need to reach 400 500 words a day no matter what i could have a cough I could have had a bad day at work. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I have to reach those limits. Uh, so you put that me limit course,
2: on like, at da- you want to say it needs to be like 4,000 a week. You'll do a daily. I do it as daily.
3: As it's kind of like you can weigh yourself every week to see if you've put on weight or you could weigh yourself every six months. I'd rather <laughs> intercept the problem early. And I learned that by yeah. having gotten to a much heavier <laughs> weight than I am now. Uh, sorry, remind me what was the question? I, I lost, I forgot what the question was. That you just asked. Uh, the
2: other was, was talking about, you know, storytelling being really oh, yes, a component yes. of almost any endeavor.
3: Absolutely. So whenever I'm looking at one of my students, uh, you know, something that they've submitted, let's say it might be a first draft of their thesis. I always tell them, I don't see where you're going. Where's the roadmap? I need to be able to wherever I am on any given page to know where I've been and where it looks like I'm going. And then I usually use exactly the, what you just said, which is, Scientific writing is itself a form of storytelling, right? It's a a particular template, right? There is, you know, there's an introduction, there is the research question statement, there's literature review, here are the hypotheses, here's the methodology we used, here are the statistical results, here's the conclusion. So the template might be, you know, kind of set, uh, but there's still a story to be to be told. So I exactly do what you're saying, which is when I'm teaching my students how to be good communicators, whether it be when they get up in front of the audience to to talk about their research or write something, they have to be good storytellers. So one of the things that I tell them is don't do this, which oftentimes they do. They have prepared notes. They get up in front of the class and evolutionary psychology is an important disability. Uh, what that's the, the hell, man? Nobody I'm wants fo- to listen to that. <laughs> no, so I, I tell them, so after they finish, I, I, I don't usually point to a particular person because I don't want to embarrass them. But I say, just imagine how hopefully you've gotten engaged in the material that I've taught this semester. This is usually at the end of the semester where they're presenting their final projects. I said, imagine if I walked in and then I take, you know, I start doing it as if, as if they do it. How long would it be before I lose every single person in here, right? Right. What what draws you in is that I'm looking at you. I'm walking around the room, right? We are a visual creature. I, I look in your eyes and so on. And so you're exactly right. Communication is nothing more than good storytelling.
2: Yeah. Does being around academia keep you young in a way, feeling young? Not just feeling young in the sense of, you know, you're around fresh ideas, but also, you know, you're around these young people who are using new technology. They've got the latest app. I just feel like you'd be constantly exposed to the <laughs> newest, latest stuff.
3: I actually, paradoxically, I feel the exact opposite, which is I live in a world where only one person ever gets older, which is me, right? The <laughs> students are always, well, depending on which class it is. That's, that's like the famous Matthew
2: McConaughey line, right? He's looking at all the girls like, I keep getting older. They keep staying the same age. Oh, is that, I, high there school you go. And, uh, dazed and confused. Yeah.
3: Oh, there you go. So so I actually feel exactly the opposite, which is, you know, I'll walk into class and I say, like, let's say this semester is my 30th year and so when, as a professor. And so it is literally the case that not a single person in my undergraduate course was born when I was already, you know, many years into my professorship. Uh, that doesn't make me feel young. It makes me feel like a dinosaur.
2: Oh, that's funny. You know, we were just in a, uh, a parent, you know, you, you know, you go into curriculum night for like fourth grade or something like that. And one of the parents in our class, we, you know, we all had fourth graders, the teacher teaching these fourth graders had also taught the mother in the class. So it was the second generation of, <laughs> of student for her. It was, a, it was a moment that I think she did not enjoy as a teacher. It was like, my God, I've been doing this too long. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day.
2: wanted to ask you about Jordan Peterson for a second. And you, you two are paired often in sort of like the same category of public intellectual, important voices out there. And I, I like Jordan Peterson's work. And I, I confess I haven't listened to a ton. I'm not like, a, you know, one of the devoted uh, followers of of him, but I like what he's doing. And I have watched him a few times in interviews. And one of the things I noticed about him that I don't love, that is an interesting contrast with you that I do love, is that I get the sense when he talks that he's, he's got it kind of figured out, you know, he's like, here's how it is. And it what rubbed me the wrong way is I got the sense that he was like, I'm kind of done learning. I'm only teaching. Whereas you have this thing of like, I'm never done learning. I am always learning. I'm, te- I'm also teaching. Like I know a lot, but I don't know it all. And I'm happy to learn more. And I'm open-minded to learning a lot more. And I'm open-minded to being persuaded that I'm wrong. And I never got that impression from him. Whereas I do get that impression from you. Do you have thoughts on that?
3: Thank you, that's a, that's, a, that's a lovely compliment because I think epistemic humility is something that I very much cherish. Look, uh, b- before I answer kind of the, the Jordan versus Gad uh, comparison, one of the biggest stressors as I walk into my study where I'm sitting right now is, you, you, you can't see it now on camera, but well, but we see it behind you. I've got hundreds and hundreds of yet to be read books and the amount of stress that I feel on a daily basis thinking, imagine if all of the knowledge in those books were now to be in my brain, how much more knowledgeable and interesting I would be, right? And so exactly to your point, I always feel as though when you actually know a lot, you realize how little you know. There's so much out there to know. And so, by the way, and so now to to, to speak about the specific comparison that you you mentioned between Jordan and me. Jordan has always operated in prescriptive world, right? As a clinical psychologist, it is part of his job to prescribe behavior. Whereas as an academic psychologist, I have typically operated in descriptive world. I just explained why do women do this? Why do men do that? How do they search for information? How do hormones affect our behaviors? And so in writing this last book, Happiness, uh, the happiness book, I was concerned Exactly to your point. So it's amazing that you picked up that difference between Jordan and me, because I felt, do I actually have the necessary hubris to be able to tell people, here are the secrets to how to live a good life? Uh, could anyone ever have that kind of self-assuredness? And so that's why I think I try to attenuate that that issue by arguing that the prescriptions that I offer in the book are meant to serve as statistical likelihood of increasing your happiness, yeah. right? So so the, the world is a statistical minefield. And I can tell you that if you use this mechanism to choose a spouse, it increases the probability of you having a happy marriage. And so so to your point, yeah. I think that Jordan, perhaps because, I mean, partly maybe dispositionally, but also because he has spent his career diving into the the psyches of patients, he feels more comfortable being prescriptive man.
2: Yeah. I. And by the way, your tone in the book was not at all like I'm up on Sinai telling you how it's going to be. It's, it was much more like this worked for me. Here's some data in addition to support it. So take it, shape it, mold it, make it your own. It might, work or help you in, in some way. Yeah. So yeah, the, the book yeah. is terrific. I, I really did love it. Actually, one thing on that, again, c- drawing from your book and and you do share some personal examples and and I, I am curious how some folks in your life reacted to it because your cousin takes a bit of a beating at one one passage <laughs> in the book and it, it goes to this thing of judgmental narrow-mindedness. I guess you had had an interview with Tucker Carlson and and you know you you get on with tucker and you agree on some things and i'm sure not on some others and your cousin though was like how could you ever you know be associated with that person in any way and your message was to the reader was don't be like my cousin (laughs) so did did your cousin ever read that and have have thoughts for you about that passage i don't know if
3: he's read it uh I, I hope he has. Be, I mean, I wasn't trying to be frivolously mean to him by being underhanded. I mean, frankly, I hope that he reads it and causes him. I mean, I it causes him to think because I fought. I found. I mean, you know, I'm I'm someone who's very much driven by a you know a, an exacting code of personal conduct. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm my my worst critic in that I think that here are the standards by which you should abide by, uh, and for him to publicly chastise me. I mean, he mm-hmm. could have written to me privately and said, hey, God, I just wanted to say, yeah, I love your success. And I'm sure you had good reasons to go on Tucker. He's got a huge show. But hey, tell me, wh- how, you know, why do you like this guy? Here are the reasons why I dislike the guy. And I would have been happy to entertain that. We could have... Got them yeah. together in person. I mean, he doesn't live in Montreal, but all we could have done well, is I was wondering
2: if he, if he could have been... So you, you kind of hit him for being judgmental and narrow-minded and sort of unpersuadable in a way. Like, I, I was wondering if he ever would come back to you and be like, you know what? You have persuaded me. It just sounds like he did not. But it, it'd be an interesting experiment. As a professor, like, is anyone truly persuadable? And I don't, I don't mean like a six-year-old. You know, I can persuade my six-year-old of something. But I, like, what if you took... Are you teaching graduate? How old are your students? So
3: at the undergraduate, they'll be up to 22, 23. PhD level, they could be up
2: in their 30s. It'd be interesting if you took the, the group in the 30s, you know, which the people who are really kind of set in their ways. And you can, maybe they could self-identify as center right, center left, woke, whatever. If you had 10 and 10, you know, on the on far left, far right, if if you could... Taylor thing, like by the end, could you are any of them winnable? Like, do you think any of them would be truly win? Could you unwokeify a woke person who's thirty four yeah, years old?
3: A phenomenal question, and I actually address exactly that issue in chapter seven of the Parasitic Mind. The chapter is titled "How to Seek Truth," and I'm offering this very powerful epistemological tool to teach you how to construct arguments in order to win debates when your interlocutors Mm -hmm. are uniquely hostile. But then as I start that chapter where I'm very hopeful to your point that, hey, people can be flipped. People, if you give them enough evidence and if they are intellectually honest and they weigh the evidence, they might be willing to change their mind. I then refer, which goes again, I refer to a, a book that perfectly is antithetical to what I'm trying to do, which is a book by uh, uh, Mercier and Sperber, two French cognitive psychologists. Uh, I I think the the theory is called the theory of uh, argumentation or something, where they argue that our faculty to reason did not evolve in order to seek some truth with a capital T, but rather it evolved to win arguments. Now, that's Uniquely problematic, because if our faculty to reason is not a intellectually honest processor of information, so then I'm just going to go la la la. I don't want to hear it because I want to make sure that my team wins. So Mm -hmm. I think the truth lies somewhere in between those two extreme positions. I don't think I could flip everyone. But I don't think that everyone is so anchored in their positions and so intellectually dishonest that they are absolutely unwinnable. Because if that were true, then all of my public engagements have been completely useless because I then there, there was, there's no hope to ever change anybody's mind. So I think it, I mean, it would be great to, for example, look at what's, what are some personality traits that can help us understand where you fit in that continuum. So for example, your score mm-hmm. on dogmatism might be one that is probably predictive of whether you are open to incoming information or not.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I think to persuade someone over the course of a day or a week, it would have to be high trauma, like something, you know, someone has to die or you have to have, you know, but maybe over the course of a year or two, like you know, with a number of hits, and you know, you I don't know, you get sick of paying taxes over a period of time or whatever it is. So, or you know, I, it
3: I can offer a specific example that's taking place right now. So take for example the the American billionaire Bill Ackman, right? Who I'm now seeing incessantly going after his alma mater at Harvard, right? Well, yeah. Bill Bill Ackman was not at the forefront of the culture wars when Gad Saad was standing as the lone wolf for 30 years saying we have a problem here's the problem right bill ockman and i'm not i'm not saying this to to identify bill ockman as a problem but, but because it's a reflection of a more general you know reality of human nature which is Most people only pay attention when it uniquely affects them, right? So when Bill Ackman saw that there was massive Jew hatred on university campuses, well, he's Jewish, so okay, his ears perked up. When he saw it at his alma mater, which he's proud of, now his ears double perked up. So now he is fully engaged. But frankly, the real hero, and again, I'm not... I'm not criticizing Bill Ackman I think he's a great guy and so on he's doing good stuff. The real hero is the one who intervenes when it it has no immediate relevance to him, right? It's it's right. the fact of seeing the the woman being mugged in the alley, it's not my daughter and yet I still can't help but feel as though it's my duty to intervene. So so to your point, I think most people are unwilling to be persuaded until it's it the, it knocks on the door.
2: Do you I, where you are at Concordia, is it very different from Harvard? I mean, the, the Harvard madness is uh, is it's hard to believe that's happening. Is it very different where you are? Or do you think it's pervasive throughout university? I mean, Canada maybe even be worse than America. In, in, uh, well, Canada is worse than issues.
3: America and Concordia is uniquely woke. So not only uniquely woke, but also has a uh, demographic reality that does not make it really uh, friendly towards Jews. Let's put it that way. So Concordia University, well before the current uh East crisis, used to be colloquially known as Gaza University. I mean, literally, right? Uh, wow. And so, and so so they, they are definitely chat now. That doesn't mean that you know every day you know people are walking around uh, uh, you know feathering. Tarring Jews, but it is certainly an environment that has historically been quite hostile to folks like
2: me. Number one, being the the anti-Hiding under the desk thing is real there.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, in that case, yes. Have you you ever felt physical?
2: Have you ever felt physically insecure there?
3: Oh, Doug, I I walk around on campus with security. Are you kidding me? Uh, So it first started in 2017. I was receiving a, a just a tsunami of death threats, uh, main, online mainly, so that I had to report it to the university. The university, uh, they, they they assigned someone to the case who then went with me to the Montreal police. We had to file a report with the detectives of the, this is not the campus police, this is the, the Montreal police. And then whenever I would come into campus, there was a security protocol. Uh, that lasted for about a semester in 2017, at the time, it was largely kind of neo nazi types who were angered by i mean the details don't matter now but most recently this past semester given some of the uh realities that have uh, transpired in the middle east and some of the positions that i've taken and so on uh it it's been very very rough for me to go to to, to campus i mean imagine i i have to walk to school where you know most people recognize who i am and there mm-hmm. are you know, rabid chance of intifada and from the river to the sea, that can't be a non-hostile
2: work environment, right? My God. Oh my God. There's gotta be, I mean, I know it's tough to, we, we kind of hit on this early on. It's not like you just pick up at some other university and getting tenure and professorships is not an easy thing, but I, 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 I yeah. wish you would find a, a better place to be. That is really hard
3: well from your lips to God's ear frankly i mean even beyond the fact of the my unique reality at my current university look uh, to be a professor is is in my dna i mean you 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 could you could take my dna and you'll see where it codes for me being a professor so it it pains me to to no end to to say hey maybe you know i've i've had my run in academia not that i would ever want to leave academia but frankly there are elements of academia outside of the woke stuff that I've grown tired of. So the the administrative burdens, I don't really enjoy. The telling Timmy why he got a B minus on participation because he actually didn't end up showing to 60% of the classes is not really where my time is well spent. And I don't mean that in I'm, I'm too important, I'm too haughty to care about that. If you truly were a student who was interested in, engaging ideas then i'd be infinitely available but there's just the Mm -hmm. the daily grind the daily mechanics of the management and administration of you being a professor that after 30 years i'm tired of so what i would love to do in a in a dream world would be to immerse myself every moment every waking moment of my life in the process of creating whether i'm creating the online content or creating an article in in a popular magazine or a yeah, academic paper. Yeah, I feel like paper. you and
2: uh you and Dennis Prager ought to team up. We'll get like the Sad Prager You and that'll be, you know, take that institution to the next level.
3: Well, I mean in a sense, Jordan to to your earlier comparison that you referred to, Jordan is trying to put together what he calls the Peterson Academy and they've they've come to me several times asking me to teach courses mm-hmm. within their academy. Uh the problem is is, you know, as long as you don't have a credentialized way of having those courses count to someone something right if if you're just saying Mm. in a purest sense hey look there are infinite number of ways by which now you could be taught by all of the great thinkers you just have to go on youtube that's true so from an intrinsic perspective uh, you know the world is truly your your pedagogic oyster so to speak but if you need the credentials Regrettably, right now, we still need to go to universities. There is a value to going to Cornell and Harvard and Yale, which the Saad Prager University doesn't give you.
2: Yeah. Um, Two quick things before we get into the lightning round. One is, if you could help me out with this question that's been nagging me. I went to a funeral service for a, a great friend of mine who's Jewish, and at the service, they there's discussion of the afterlife, but I had always thought Jewish people don't believe in an afterlife. So, can you clear that up for me?
3: Well, that's that's my understanding as well. So, and it it pretty much ends there that there isn't uh, an afterlife. So, what 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 is it that they were saying that altered your understanding of it? Is it they thought that, that there was an gonna, afterlife?
2: Yeah, they were going to meet again in the afterlife. So, I don't know. I mean, I think okay. that there I was, is I was some. Confused by that?
3: Yeah. No, I I. I fall into your cap, which is that there isn't uh, the same concept of an afterlife as you might have, say, in Christianity. Now, of course, when the Messiah is supposed to come, which in Christianity he's already come, in Judaism he hasn't, then that's when, you know, you might have the raising of the dead and so on. But I don't know all of the other details, frankly, I couldn't tell you.
2: Okay. And then last thing, if you could, for the listeners... Give your quick pitch, like the, you know, after you've been a month on book tour, you've got this riff down. Give us sort of your pitch on The Sad Truth About Happiness and The Parasitic Mind, why that would be a great uh, book, especially in these times with the madness going on around us. So
3: The Parasitic Mind basically explains how these idea pathogens were all spawned on university campuses how they spread, how they proliferated. And then at the end of the book, I offer a mind vaccine to inoculate us against these dreadful ideas. What are some of these dreadful ideas? Postmodernism, cultural relativism, social constructivism, identity politics, you know the, the victimology, poker game, diversity, inclusion, and equity. All of these, I trace their history and how we can develop the type of cognitive discipline to inoculate ourselves against that. So that's the parasitic mind. In the sad truth uh, about happiness, I talk about some of the decisions that are most likely to increase our happiness, choosing the right spouse, choosing the right job. And then I go through various mindsets that overwhelmingly increase your likelihood of being happy. So pursuing all things in moderation, as Aristotle had taught us, it actually truly does work. It's a universal law of maximal flourishing. Uh, viewing life as a playground, uh, pursuing variety, trying to live life with a, with a sense of anticipatory regret. One of the things that you know looms in people's minds when they're sitting on the proverbial uh, porch when they're 85 years old is they have these ruminative thoughts about things that they regret. The, and typically the things that they regret most are They regret things that they didn't do regret due to inaction rather than regret due to action so if you can Mm -hmm. always be mindful of that jeff bezos by the way when he decided to leave his high-paying job to start amazon used an anticipatory regret mechanism he said i didn't want in the future to look back and regret that i hadn't done it and so I talk about things like that. I talk about the importance of anti-fragility, of resilience. I I describe how many of the greatest of all time in different disciplines, Michael Jordan, Lionel Messi, JK Rowling, Steven uh, Spielberg, were all rejected in a myriad of ways before they became successful. Imagine if each of those had wilted away uh, when they failed. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. I sort of go through all of these winning mindsets. And as you said earlier, a mixture of my personal anecdotes coupled with ancient wisdoms backed up by contemporary science, you hopefully have a good read.
2: It's a great, relatable read. I connected with so much in there. And if we allow that 50% of happiness is non-genetic, there's a lot of room for optimizing. And this this book ah. is a great, great way to get you thinking about how to do that. So the sad truth about happiness. All right. So on to the lightning round with Professor Gad Sad, your favorite book as a kid. You know you 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 stumped me with that one because I was trying I first of all I was going to write
3: back to you and say well what do you mean by kid is is 18 year old a kid I took it to mean much younger than that so I had to go back into my memory trove when I was in <laughs> Lebanon growing up which is probably one of the last times that I very seriously read fiction uh I'm 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 a way better nonfiction reader than I am of a fiction one, and so there were two series called uh, in fr- and I actually wrote them in English, but I knew them in French. Le, oh, let me just read it. Le clan des sept in English, it, the series is called The Secret Seven. And Le Club des Cinq, which is the famous five, it's Enid Blyton. I didn't even know that that's who it was, but it was, I used to devour these books. It's about these intrepid kids that go around the neighborhood kind of solving these mysteries. And so I always kind of, these resonated with me. So that answers the under 11 years old books that I read as a kid.
2: The neighborhood, was it in France? These are French kids? Uh, these are, uh, I think they are French kids, but of course I was
3: in Beirut, Lebanon, but I think they were, yeah. at, I mean, at least that's how I coded it's it a, because like I read it book, in French, yeah. but I frankly, I don't remember yeah. where where it was taking place.
2: All right. That's a good recommendation. I've not heard those. So I'll pick it up. Uh book or books you're reading now?
3: Well, you mentioned earlier uh, the story with my cousin. Now, last week I had this author on my show. I'm currently reading this neo-Nazi <laughs> This evil yep. monster, Tucker. I'm reading that. The next one. Uh,
2: so for for uh, listeners I'm, only, that was a big. Who wrote that Tucker biography? Which which one was it uh, Chadwick Moore. Chadwick Moore on Tucker. Okay, Tucker Chadwick Carlson.
3: Moore wrote the book. He, he was on my show last week, so go check it out. L- absolutely lovely guy. Uh, I'm almost done with the book. Very nice,
2: fun, easy. You know, easy, quick read. Was he cooperating with that book, or was that is it the authorized biography or unauthorized?
3: It, it, no, no, it is because he actually hung out with him, even stayed with him for long periods of time. Interviewed his his wife, Susie, and so on. There are there are all kinds of really personal stories, which I mean, I know, and I think you do as well, and c- certainly your wife does. Uh, I know Tucker personally, and so you know, I, I I know him on a on a more intimate level. But as you read the book, you even appreciate. Uh, how lovely he is, uh, and it, it resonates with you because I I can I can understand some of the stories in there. He's really quite a warm guy. Uh, the book that I'm thinking of reading next, which speaks to our earlier uh, issue of the stress that I feel of all the books that I've yet to read. Just last week, I picked up from one of the only remaining used bookstores in Montreal that that's still standing. Uh, I picked up the. Third biography, although I haven't read the first two, the third biography on Leonardo da Vinci by uh, Walter Isaacson.
2: Isaacson. Yeah, I've read that one. That's a great one.
3: Have you, so what do you think? You think, i am I making a good choice?
2: Yes, it's a great book. It's a great book. You learn all sorts of fun things. Like he carried the Mona Lisa with him basically all his life. You know, there's certain wow. people like the the, the Picasso, um, um, Cezanne or Matisse, you know, Picasso basically would finish it and then it was done. Matisse would work forever. And and it was hard to let it go. Da Vinci carried the Mona Lisa till his dying day and and would, you know, break it out over decades and make little changes, little adjustments and fascinating stuff. I mean, that guy, he had the right brain and the left brain working in this unique way that that, only a handful of people in the history have ever had.
3: Exactly. And if you remember in, in, in the happiness book, at one point when I'm talking about variety seeking, I talk about the important importance of being a polymath when i'm talking about intellectual variety seeking and then i i tell mm-hmm. the story of if you ask me who are the 10 people that i'd like to invite from history for a dinner i i list who they are and i say on top of that list would be leonardo da vinci precisely because mm-hmm. he was the i mean he he literally is the renaissance man the ultimate polymath right he he did so many things very well and i greatly appreciate that so i think my next book is the walter isaacson da vinci book
2: that you'll love it. Isaacson is great as well. I mean, a fascinating subject, and in, in Isaacson's hands, just just really great. The best or most thought-provoking question ever asked by a student in your in your class.
3: by, by the way, I I so love those questions. F- few people. I mean, yeah, I've been on a million shows. I love those because they they really kind of stop you and make you think. Can I slightly cheat by saying it's not a question by a student, but it's a student approaching me? after the end of a class to say something Is, would that be okay sure yeah okay uh, it's actually, I actually i i can't remember i think i might th- that actually speaks to the freud young thing that earlier i said can we maybe we should hold off and table it so i was teach i was a visiting professor at uc irvine at one point for two years and i had just finished lecturing uh, so this this was a, a consumer psychology book a, a course consumer behavior course to MBAs, mm-hmm. many of whom were coming from a health background you know they were physicians or surgeons and so on and so at one point I one of the lectures I talk about, uh, the methodology of projective techniques. So projective techniques are things like word association, right? So you know, if I say mother, very quickly, tell me what's the first word that comes to mind. The idea being Son. that I'm you not. don't want to allow people to think about it. They have to just say what first comes to mind. And I was trying to mm-hmm. explain how we use projective techniques in marketing and in consumer behavior. And that led me to talk about the history of psychoanalysis. And I was, saying, I was saying some rather derogatory things about, well, Jung, but more Freud. And so at the end of the lecture, this, this little, you know, very demure kind of student comes up to me and she says, oh, I just wanted to thank you for today's lecture, Professor Saad. I said, why? What, what what resonated with you? What Why are you saying that? She goes, well, I'm a Practicing psychiatrist. And it was so liberating to have someone like you, you know, slam Jung and Freud because when I was getting my training, I would have never dared, you know, slam them. But I think a lot of what they said was utter, you know, I don't think she said bullshit, but utter nonsense or something. And so I just want to thank you because it was like music to my ear. So I think that moment is one of those episodic memories that sticks in your head because here is a psychiatrist who had been too afraid to then
2: you know, support what I was saying in front of the whole class. Right. Like the challenge, what becomes the institutional thinking. All right. Same question uh, as that, but the most disheartening. Uh, so this speaks to my question when I said I hate
3: some of the mechanics and the 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 administration of my daily life as a professor. So I'm talking about, you know, the evolutionary roots of psychopathology and a student puts up their hand and, you know, I'm excited. I'm, you know, I'm a passionate guy. Yes, John, Uh, sir. What, what you said right now, is that going to be on the exam? So (laughs) I usually start off the the first day. Often people think I'm this really kind of very, you know, acerbic guy because I walk in somewhat pissed off, not the happy warrior because I want to try to pre, prevent a lot of the bullshit that I might face later in the course. So I usually tell them now, don't ever ask me, is this going to be on the exam? Ever. But regrettably, that's probably the most disheartening question where it's, is the exam going to be hard? What type of questions are you going to ask? Are you going to have this on the exam? So it's never about intrinsic pursuits of knowledge. It's always extrinsic things related to
2: your GPA. That's right. Yeah. If I say it, it's worth hearing you know it doesn't have to be tested exactly uh let's see other than the US or Canada the country in the world most conducive to happiness
3: well you know because because you gave the the qualify you it can't be US or Canada i would have said newport beach that that is the promised <laughs> land it's not israel it's newport beach but you said i can't say that so i started thinking it's for me so this is not you're not asking what is the Academic literature saying, because I discussed that in the book, it's Iceland and Norway and Denmark. You're asking me sort of my my personal preferences of what constitutes a happy life. Yes,
2: yes, exactly. Like where culturally, socially, intellectually, where do you think? I, I mean, I suppose so, you know these are individual things. So I, we could take it from where you would be most happy, but where do you or or where do you think, as a statistical result, most people would be most happy?
3: So I can't believe that the research does not support the idea that people in sunnier places are happier. Uh, I was surprised that apparently there isn't much of a correlation as per mm. the Scandinavian countries score very highly on unhappiness for, for other reasons beyond weather. Uh, all other things equal, I think a, a Mediterranean climate, it could be Southern California, it could be Lebanon, it could be Portugal or Greece, it could be Cape Town, South Africa. That kind of weather for me is is where I need to be. I'm I'm made to be in a Mediterranean climate. So mm-hmm. we recently, this past summer, visited and spent uh, maybe about two and a half weeks in Portugal, largely in the Algrave in uh, Algarve in the southern of, south of Portugal. I think to me, short of the fact that I'm linguistically, you know, out of the in group because I don't speak Portuguese. That's the kind of environment that I feel uh, would make me happiest. Beautiful weather, access to the beach, the luminosity of the sun is simply outlandish. Mm -hmm. And it's small little villages where you feel as though uh, the the environment of our evolutionary adaptiveness where you know you can have these tight bonds because you keep going to the same bakery every morning you build yeah. these you know repeat interactions is probably the kind of environment that would make me maximal what happy.
2: about if you overlay the you know the political structure of a certain country or or cultural oh, norms
3: so for me it would overwhelmingly be a country that has a government that is as least intrusive as possible so it's exactly not canada it's exactly not the place where the government can take steal rape 58% of my book royalties no society should tolerate that and so any place where you know there's a cap on how much you could tax me you know because i've done the unthinkable by becoming uh productive and therefore you need to punish me so that the parasites (laughs) can benefit in a socialist utopia uh, is where I would want. So in a sense, that's one thing that in the Middle East is kind of pretty cool because, you know, when my parents first moved to to Montreal from Lebanon, they were like, what's what's with all these rules? What's with all these taxes? You know, in, in Lebanon, you can sort of completely live your life without the government. I mean, yes, in Lebanon, you could be executed as we found out in 1975, but at least in terms of the governmental intrusion into your daily life, uh, maybe Malta would be great. That, that might be a place for us to live.
2: All right, Malta. All right, let's, we'll all, you know, we'll all meet up in Malta. You've got to get out of Canada, first of all, my God. <laughs> All right. Favorite few recent TV shows to recommend to listeners. Great. So I tried to think both of, because I could have easily just told you
3: all, because I don't like to watch a lot of fiction shows. Like I don't watch dramas and so on. Uh, Usually I love police documentaries, crime, you know, right? So Mm -hmm. there's a new show interrogation raw where they show how the cops are slowly you know, hammering away at some guy who's saying, I didn't do it. And and I love the dynamic as a psychologist of how the criminals always think that they're way smarter than the cops. The cops are complete hicks who absolutely can't put two and two together. And yet, bit by bit, the news is tied, I mean, metaphorically, if not mm-hmm. literally, around the, the, the criminal. So I enjoy those types of shows, cold case files, interrogation raw, and so on. But in terms mm-hmm. of a fiction show, I recently watched uh I think it was two seasons of White Lotus. Oh Have yeah. Have you seen that?
2: That yeah, hilarious.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I love that because well, I looked at it, I mean, first it's it's entertaining. I love the 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 setting. I think the second season was filmed if I'm not mistaken in Sicily where my wife and I had spent some time. Sicily would be another place where It could bring maximal happiness, given my preferences. But I loved, there were many evolutionary themes, right? As in any good literature or any cultural product that sticks, it it has to be congruent with human nature. It has to speak to our shared human, you know, nature our biological heritage and so you know the 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 jealousy felt at you know is she cheating on me and so on and all these kinds of Mm -hmm. things really captivated me if if for no other reason the fact that i understand the evolutionary roots of all those sentiments so i would say white lotus was really good another one which you probably might not be familiar with because you don't speak french is a french series that's outstanding it's called call my agent it's, it refers
2: oh, yeah. to. Have you seen it? I we we did a couple as you know with subtitles. We did a couple episodes of that, and uh, we, somehow we got off track. But I was really enjoying it. We'll go back to it.
3: And I wish you could look. I'm sure that the translation is great, but when you listen to it in the original language, there are you know unique idioms and 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 references that are specific to you being able to understand French. So. I don't suspect that you're going to learn French to watch it, but sure, so so watch it with subtitles. But that's a great show as well.
2: Okay, great, great recommendations. Well, last question for Professor Gad said one piece of advice for listeners.
3: Uh, I would say live an authentic life now, and I don't mean authentic in the sense be real in your interactions, that's important too. I mean, existentially authentic, right? So don't become a pediatrician because your dad was a pediatrician and your your granddad was a pediatrician, because I can almost guarantee you that you will wake up at 58 and deeply regret that you never pursued your interest in art or architecture because you didn't live an authentic life. So Understand yourself as the famous Delphic maxim says, know thyself. Uh, Know thyself. And once you know thyself, you could hopefully live an authentic and true life.
2: That's great advice. Gad, thank you so much for being here. This is great. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to talk to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you.